0: Well, as you know, we've been walking through a summer series on the doctrine of the church. I'm just talking about the nature of the church, what the church is, and what the church is to be about. And last week I told you that at the tail end of this series, we wanted to do just a a series of sermons at the tail end. Really, so what messages? So what type of messages? In other words, messages that are focused on, now that we understand what or who the church is, um, so what? What does this mean for our practice as Christians individually and for us as a as a church? And so I call these uh, sermons essential practices of the church essential practices of the church last week We saw the importance and practice of church membership and I wanted to just affirm so many of you um, On the one hand so many of you who have stepped up who have been attending calvary for a, a while who really do consider calvary your home church and you have um uh, prayerfully have thought through um, whether you should connect to this body and you are pursuing church membership in response to God's Word last week. Uh, that is the greatest, I can tell you for any any pastor, elder that comes up here and teaches, the greatest reward in our impartation of God's Word is when God's people respond to what God says. And I want to affirm you, what a wonderful thing to see so many people who signed up to become members here at the church. We even had to look for um, Uh, backup plans as far as the room, because we couldn't fit everybody in the room for the upcoming membership class. That's a really good thing. That's a good problem to have, right? And we have to come up with another room because it's overflowing um, with people who signed up. And then others of you just sharing, even just a few minutes ago, in response to last minute, uh, last week's message, just, and the, and the series of sermons that have come this summer. Just your, many of you have expressed a desire to really connect to the body. Maybe you are an official, formal member of Calvary Bible Church already, but you don't feel connected. You don't feel like you're really using your gifts. For the glory of God and the edification of God's people here. And it's been so encouraging to see the emails and then to hear some of you express some of those things about, I, I just really want to God to use me here um, to invest into his people. So how can I do that? It is so wonderful and beautiful and exhilarating to see you respond to the word of God. So I want to affirm you and, and commend that to you um, as one of your elders here. It's so, such a joy to, to see that response. Um, now, next week, as you know, as uh, Alex mentioned, we're going to be having our marriage conference Friday and Saturday. If you haven't signed up for that, make sure that you do that. And then Sunday morning, Mike Abendroth, a very godly brother, a gifted teacher, preacher, um, godly husband and father, um, he's going to be preaching uh, Sunday morning, first service, and then second service, we're going to combine all the fellowship groups in the worship center. and We're going to be having a Q&A that is going to be helpful, not just marriage and parenting questions, but broad questions on theology, doctrine, our culture, different things like that. I know that Mike Abendroth has a, a, a local radio station, or a podcast rather, uh, No Compromise Radio. In Massachusetts, where he pastors. So he's very connected to issues in our culture and all of that. So I thought it helpful. The elders thought it helpful that we should combine fellowship groups and allow you to hear, uh, from this, uh, brother and, um, as he brings the word of God to bear upon us, even in that particular context. So make sure that you make that a priority, okay? Now, after next week, uh, we are going to continue in our uh, essential practices of, of the church. We're going to be looking at baptism. Um, I originally, um, Uh, set myself out to cover both baptism and the lord's supper this morning So I humbly want to confess to you that as I continue to prepare this week and as we were led to this sunday morning I realize there is no way in the world that i'm going to be able to cover both of these all right And so I want you to know this morning. We're going to be focusing our attention on the essential practice in the church of the lord's supper of the lord's supper when we come back after the marriage conference baptism and then what is loving church restoration? What is loving church restoration? Commonly known as church discipline. And I want you to know that the heart behind these essential practice sermons is this. We're living in an age, and I know you know this as you look at the culture around us, we're living in a day and age of high skepticism toward Christianity, toward the Bible, really in every issue in our society, everything is up for grabs. Everything is up for questioning. Nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is sure in our world. And even Christians in the church and even professing believers don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't know. They don't have any substance behind their practices. And So it's very important for us to be looking at some of these issues. And this whole series this summer has been about that. What is the church and why do we do what we do as Christians here on this earth? I read a recent survey this week of how 60% 60% of professing believers, regular attenders in evangelical churches across America, don't know why, generally speaking, why we do church membership in the church. Why we encourage the Lord's Supper, why we encourage baptism, that is water, baptism in the church, Why are those things important? And an array of other issues. Can you believe that? They cannot look at Scripture and, and honestly and reasonably and accurately be able to look at Scripture and say, "This is why we practice the Lord's Supper in the church." That's pretty sad. And these are people who, generally, as a survey went on to say, they, they've been in churches for years. And yet they don't have any substance behind their practices. They don't know what they believe. And there are many professing Christians that generally just go through the motions in churches. They go through the motions. They don't really know why they believe what they believe. And I really believe with all of my heart, beloved, that that is the reason why we are seeing so many people, from a human perspective, walking away from evangelical Christian churches in America. And I know that ultimately the theological answer to that is they were never ultimately of us if they walk away definitively from the faith. We know that, that that is true. But you know what? People just don't have any substance behind what they profess to believe. And that's a dangerous place to be in our culture. And so for that reason, my heart is to is to really zero in on these things that we're talking about so that we would look at God's Word and have susten- substance behind why we believe what we believe. Did you hear about the... Very prominent um, former pastor, author, entrepreneur guy now, I guess. Um, The former pastor by the name of Joshua Harris. He was the guy that wrote in the 90s, late 90s, I believe, 1997, a book titled um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye and many other bestsellers. I mean, that thing just exploded. And recently, it came out a couple of weeks ago or so. Um, His wife and him posted something on one of their social media um, I think it was uh, uh, Instagram, where they basically both announced very passively, very straightforwardly, almost without any, really a, any sense of, of sobriety, the fact that they are getting a divorce, that they're choosing to separate. They're going to continue to be friends, but they've chosen this particular path. And then the real blow came last weekend, where this man announced the fact that essentially he's abandoning the Christian faith. That he's abandoning the christian faith he was a prominent pastor at a, at a prominent church in the east coast an author was raised in the church by christian parents and all of that and now he's completely walked away from the lord and we know the biblical answer to that don't we that ultimately this man never was of us you cannot lose your salvation according to the word of god We are protected by the power of God for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time by the power of God and the Spirit of God. We cannot lose our salvation, so he was never really in the faith if he remains that way all the way until the end. We need to pray for his repentance. And none of us should look at that and be like, yeah, you know, it was probably this and this and this and this. Listen, caution, right? Caution and warning to all of us. As Galatians 6 says, that we, each of us, can be tempted, so we need to guard ourselves. That our hearts are not growing hardened to the truth of the Word of God. That we be that third soil in Jesus' parable that for a while we knew all the facts and we were there was some sense of excitement and all of that, but eventually the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of sin came in and choked the Word. We need to guard ourselves when we hear things like that. And we understand that the progression of Sanctification goes from head, the things that we know and understand, must then grip our hearts, right? So that our affections are gripped by the things that we know and we understand from the Word of God. So that it goes from beyond knowing intellectual facts to really loving God with our hearts, and then it fleshes itself out in our hands and our practice. And I want you to know that is why I think sermons like these, as we look at God's Word surrounding the practices of the church, are so important for us. So that we would be informed in our thinking, our head. Not just about facts, but then that those things would really grip our hearts and our affections. So that then we would practice these things, listen to me, from conviction and with delight, beloved. So many of us are just going through the motions. So many of us just kind of come and go on Sunday mornings or during the week. And we just sort of passively live life. We go do our thing for the whole summer and then we come back and we wonder why our hearts are cold because really our hearts are not in these things that we claim to believe in from God's word. They haven't gripped our hearts. And so this is why this is so, so important for us. I want you to know this. this is significant for us. And so as we examine these practices, this morning I want to focus on the Lord's Supper. What is it? Why do we do it? Why is it so significant? Okay? And I want us to look under this uh, theme or topic of the Lord's Supper at five important aspects of the Lord's Supper for us to consider. Five important aspects for us to consider. And my heart is that you would, as we we walk through this together, that you would grow in your appreciation of the Lord's Supper and continue to make the Lord's Supper a priority in your personal life and when we come together collectively. That there would be joy and, and this would be the conviction of your heart that this is important for us as individual Christians and as a church. So here are five important aspects for us to consider about the Lord's Supper. Okay? The first one is this. The first aspect is that the Lord's Supper is commanded in Scripture. The Lord's Supper is commanded. Right off the bat, it's important for us to be reminded as many an elder has come up here and reminded us Christ commanded the regular practice of the Lord's table or communion or the Lord's Supper. All of those are synonymous ways that we describe the Lord's Supper. And Paul reiterated The instructions, specific instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we are to follow concerning the Lord's Supper. But I want you to know this, that the Lord's Supper has its roots way before the time of Jesus to what we know as the Passover feast in the Old Testament. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. I think this is so important for us to look at and consider from the Old Testament The context here is, if you remember, God has sent nine plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And Pharaoh won't let the people go. And God says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to send send a tenth plague. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to strike all of the firstborn men and animals of uh, children in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh will finally let my people go. we know eventually that he actually chases the people after that. He initially lets them go. But that is the context here. And notice in chapter 12 and verse 1, and I'm going to read a few verses from here, okay? Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight." Now take note in verse 7, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the, two, on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn it with fire. And listen to this. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's... Say it with me. Passover. Passover. Now why is it called this? Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast and against all the gods of egypt i will execute judgments i am the lord i am yahweh he says the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live and listen to this and when i see the blood i will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt and notice Over the centuries, God wanted His deliverance of Israel from the hand of Egypt to be commemorated. Verse 14, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And then later on in verse 23, Moses is giving instructions to the elders according to what God said. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, What does this rite mean to you? You shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt, when He smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes, and the people bowed low and worshipped. So notice... Way before, hundreds of years before, Jesus institutes the Lord's table, His table in the Gospels, His institution of the Lord's table was upon the shoulders of this particular significant event here. The deliverance of the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. God wanted that feast to be celebrated as a reminder of His protection of His people, of His covering and passing over them, but His judgment of the Egyptians and His great power as the one true God, Yahweh. Now with that background in mind, I want you to go with me to Matthew. Okay, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the upper room, and He's going to celebrate... The Passover feast. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 18, Jesus said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher, talking about Christ, says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples the disciples did as jesus had directed them and they prepared the passover so they're in celebrate they're following suit in celebration of this same passover feast originally instituted in exodus 12 look at verse 26 while they were eating jesus took some bread and after a blessing notice he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body and when he had taken a cup and given thanks he he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins but i say to you i will not drink of the fruit of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom And so here we see that Jesus institutes a specific ordinance now that his disciples and the early church were to regularly practice, no longer celebrating that original deliverance, but now the fact that he was going to be that particular Passover lamb himself. And we know from the birth of the early church that the early church regularly practiced the Lord's table, regularly did it. From the birth of the church, they followed Jesus' orders. And by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, which was written some 30 years later, we see how Paul gives specific instructions to the Corinthian church about the regular practice and the significance of the Lord's table. And even as we're going to see some warnings in a minute from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what Curtis Thomas writes about the connection of the Old Testament Passover to now what Jesus instituted. Quote, "...whereas the Old Testament Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance in Exodus 12, the Lord's Supper points to the ultimate deliverance of God's people from slavery to sin and death. Whereas the Passover looked back to the temporary rescue from physical bondage, the Lord's Supper commemorates the eternal and spiritual deliverance provided through the New Covenant." The lamb slaughtered during the Passover merely foreshadowed the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God who died on the cross to redeem sinners once for all. End quote. So significant, isn't it? See, all all along, God's design, beloved, from the Old Testament was that the Passover feast would ultimately be fulfilled in the ultimate Passover Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist announced Him to be, right? Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that, refers to Christ as our Passover who has been sacrificed. That wonderful, beautiful feast of the Old Testament pointed forward to the ultimate one who would be the Passover lamb. And Jesus did not want his people to forget and lose sight of his atoning death on the cross. So what does he do? He commanded his disciples and by implication and application his church at that time and in the future to today to regularly practice his table his table which leads us to our second the second aspect of the significance of the lord's table the second aspect of the lord's supper is this not only is the lord's supper commanded but the lord's supper is also commemorative it's commemorative the lord's supper At its heart is a remembering of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. Specifically what? Specifically His atoning death. Atonement has the idea of payment. payment. You're already in Matthew chapter 26. Notice that here Jesus uses symbols. Symbols that are going to represent His body and His shed blood. Verse 26, While they were eating... Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, notice what he did. Every act of Christ is significant, isn't it? He broke it. He broke it. What does that signify? His body would be crushed, wouldn't it? I mean, Jesus experienced excruciating blows and hits and physical abuse. All the way to the cross, his heart, his, his body was broken. And so the bread signifies that. Some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins." So notice the bread in verse 26 represents his body that was broken. This is my body. Take, eat. The cup, presumably with wine, uh, uh, wine at the time. In verse 20, 20, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight, he says, "This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." And later on, if you turn with me to First Corinthians, go with me there. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul simply reiterates Jesus's instructions in First Corinthians eleven. I want you to see this, verse twenty-three. I know that this is a passage that we know well, but there are things that we don't often really ponder and meditate upon that we see here. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, For I received, writes Paul, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Listen to this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, verse 25, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So notice again, verse 24, the broken bread represents his broken body. The cup in verse 25 represents the new covenant in his blood. And this is key. Why are they to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper? Verse 25, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, right? In remembrance of me. And verse 24, same thing. Do this in remembrance of me. It is a commemoration. These symbols were a commemoration of his person and his work. There was nothing, nothing sacred about the, the bread in and of itself, Or the liquid in and of itself. The significance comes in what those things represent. Namely Jesus' person and his work on the cross for sinners. Here at Calvary, based upon these words of Christ. That we are to to, um, practice this. As often as you drink it in remembrance of me, verse 25, and in remembrance of me in verse 24, we believe here at Calvary that the Bible teaches that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration. It's a remembering of the Lord's broken body and shed blood on behalf of sinners. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? The heart of the gospel. The person and the work of Christ. And obviously we tack onto that the resurrection of Christ. Because if Jesus simply died and he never rose from the dead, there is no validation of his claims and of his atoning work on the cross. But Jesus died for sinners on the cross and rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. This is the heart of the gospel, beloved. This is what we proclaim. The good news of Christianity is that God offers free salvation and forgiveness of sins for all of those who abandon self-trust and put their trust in Jesus Christ by virtue of his atoning death and resurrection. It's a beautiful reality that we celebrate as we're going to see in a minute. So we hold to a commemoration, a remembering view of the Lord's Supper here at Calvary. And so you'll hear pastors and elders in the future come up here and re-emphasize this and hit it from different perspectives and different angles. And it's important for you to to have some substance behind why you're doing what you're doing. Many of you are way further along than we are, and you've you've heard these things many a time, all right? These are just a reaffirmation of what you already know. But for others of you, maybe this is the first time you've heard this. Now in the Lord's Supper, again, there are other views. Um, The Roman Catholic Church holds a view called transubstantiation transubstantiation if we hold a commemorating remembering view of the lord's supper the roman catholic church holds to a view called transubstantiation basically they believe that as soon as the roman catholic priest as they are practicing the communion holds up the bread and the wine and declares this is my body Listen, the bread and the wine are believed to become the actual, literal body and the blood of Christ. The actual, literal body and the blood of Christ. We don't believe the Bible teaches this view at all. We reject transubstantiation. We also don't hold to a view that the Lutheran denomination, for instance, holds called consubstantiation consubstantiation also referred to as the real presence of Christ view it's a sort of middle ground view that holds that though the physical body of Christ may not be visibly present during communion or the Lord's Supper his body Christ's body is present in with and under the bread of the Lord's Supper in with and under the bread of the Lord's Supper it's sort of a middle ground view we don't believe that either of these views are consistent with what Paul or the Lord said he said, "Do these things in remembrance of me." Verse twenty-four. Do these things in remembrance of me. Verse twenty-five. It's important. The Lord's Supper is a is a commemorative of the Lord's death, a commemoration of the Lord's death. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is commanded; it's a commemoration. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper, listen, is confessional. The Lord's Supper is confessional. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim Carnes did a wonderful job of reminding us of our chief confession. What is our chief confession? Jesus is Oh, wow. Were you guys paying attention? What is our chief the chief confession of the Christian is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Well, flowing from that confession is this celebratory confession. Christ has died for sinners, right? We proclaim that, we live that. The significance of that is glorious to us. Well, notice 1 Corinthians 11:26 what he says. It says for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I love that word there, proclaim. It is a present tense verb. You continually announce or declare, and the sense here is with the intent of broadly publicizing. You announce or declare something with the intent of broadly publicizing. You know what happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We are declaring continually and announcing Christ's death. To who? Obviously to the world, but more importantly, in that act, to one another. We are reminding one another, beloved, of the Christ that has saved us from our sins. How many times I know that uh, that when we are taking uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are focusing on the Lord and there are silent moments between you and God. But, you know, there have been a, a handful of times where either in this church or my previous church, I actually looked around and it was so amazing. In addition to examining my heart before God and that vertical relationship and how I'm doing before him, to look around at my other brethren who are partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it is a mutual proclamation at that moment and confession of the Christ that we follow. Right? You ever encouraged by that? There's a communal encouragement when we partake of the Lord's Supper as well. Because we are proclaiming, announcing the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross for us. That He's paid for our sins. That we have forgiveness of sins. That we have assurance of eternal life and hope. Because we have our u- union with Christ and with one another. It is a beautiful par- partaking of, of, of um, grace at that moment. As we look around and we see how what Christ has done for, for other people in the church as well. How often do we think about this? That when we practice the Lord's Supper, we are continually proclaiming Jesus' death. First of all, to one another. And notice in verse 26, for how long do we do this? At the end of verse 26, he says, until he comes. Until Christ returns, until his advent, his second advent. Earlier in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29, Jesus said these words, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, listen to this, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. How often when you partake of the Lord's Supper do you begin to look forward to that day when that sin that you're even confessing at that moment before God will be completely wiped away as far as its presence in your life? We know that Jesus is already, if we've trusted in him, he delivers us from the punishment of our sin, from its power. We don't have to give in to our sin by the grace of God and the spirit of God. We can walk in holiness. But is it glorious to you to look to the future when Jesus returns and to think one day, no more sinful thoughts, no more sinful motivations, no more sinful priorities, no more disobedience. No more wrong view, wrong thoughts about God. No more idolatry in my heart. See, at that moment, we are proclaiming those things and the significance of the death of Christ for the future when Jesus is going to be at this ultimate great feast and there's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb according to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. Oh, beloved, what I'm saying is is that When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we often don't recognize the significance of the anticipation that should fill our hearts as we look forward to that day, right? Where there will be no more sin because of what Christ has done. Which leads us to the fourth aspect of the Lord's Supper. Please don't ever miss this. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. In a sense, a foretaste of one day the marriage supper of the Lamb on that last day. At the Lord's table we celebrate what? What do we celebrate? The fact that Jesus died in your place if you have trusted in Him. He's died in your place. That's what we refer to as substitutionary atonement. That Jesus has, has taken your place, taken your punishment upon Himself. He's died in your place. He's paid the punishment that you deserved if you've trusted in Him. It is an atoning death. An atoning death. Atonement means payment. He's paid for your sins. And it is a propitiatory sacrifice, isn't it? A wrath removing sacrifice. Christ died on the cross if you trusted in him, fully satisfying God's wrath that you deserve for your sins and God's justice for your personal sins. In that historical moment, some 2,000 years ago, your sins were placed upon Jesus and your punishment was taken by him who is the spotless lamb. Isn't that glorious? We meditate and reflect upon that at the Lord's Supper, and we celebrate that, beloved. Some of us, beyond the, the sobering, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, how we should be sobered during those moments to be reminded of, of how we're living our life. We'll talk about that. But some of us approach the Lord's table oftentimes with no sense of celebration. It's almost like it's become about our merits It's become about my performance. It's become about how I live my life so that God will continue to love me and continue to have his favor upon me. Listen to me. We celebrate beyond and outside of any merits or anything that you bring to the table, which means nothing. We celebrate the merits of Christ alone. And nothing about your performance as a believer will ever change that, will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we celebrate That Jesus died in our place, that He atoned for our sins, He paid the punishment that we deserved, and that God's wrath and justice was fully satisfied. Listen, someone had to pay for sins if forgiveness for you and I was to be procured. And it certainly couldn't be you and I. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Someone had to pay for your sins. Christ did that because no human being can ever meet the expectations and the standard of God, His holy and perfect righteous character. All have sinned and fall short. has missed the mark of the glory of God. None of us can ever atone for our sins. Only the spotless, blameless, perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, sufficiently and definitively paid for your sins if you trusted in Him. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. His sufficient death. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite passages. I have, a, I have that verse on my desk in my office if you've ever gone in there because I want to be reminded daily of this reality. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made Him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Personalize that on my behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What is that? It's the great exchange, isn't it? On the cross, our sin was placed upon Christ and Christ's righteousness placed upon us when we trust in Jesus alone. This is what we joyfully celebrate at the Lord's table. Not our merits, not our performance, but Christ's merits, His perfect life, His atoning death on behalf of sinners. And you know what? That atoning death was sufficient. We are complete in Christ and it is definitive. Definitive. Have you read? Recently, I read yet again Leviticus, which is not all of our favorite books, right? And all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you remember that in the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, reading about the people coming over and over and over again with animal after animal after animal. Guts spilled all over the place and blood spilled all over the place. Why? To show the need for atonement to send the message to the people that they were to look to this future Messiah who would definitively deal with sins. You know what? I am so grateful in the sovereignty of God that I live on this side of the cross. But when I read the Old Testament and I read about the guts and the blood being spilled, I'm reminded, oh, thank you, Jesus, that by one offering, you perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That we don't have to do that anymore. Slay animal after animal after animal. Those things pictured the future. The future. When by one offering, Christ would perfect for all time those who are sanctified. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. What a glorious, glorious reality. And I remind you this morning that your assurance as a Christian, your hope is not based upon your performance, your merits. They are based upon what Christ has already done definitively and sufficiently. Amen? That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why the Lord's Supper is a celebration. So what have we seen? The Lord's Supper is commanded. It's commemorative. It's a confession. It's a celebration. Finally, and I want you to take note of this, the Lord's Supper is cautionary. The Lord's Supper is cautionary. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, you're already there. Paul has some hard words for the Corinthian church, some hard words, and I want to read these to us and then Examine them a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27. And if you're not there, I want you to open your Bible and turn there. Because this is very important for our congregation. If you profess to know the Lord, you need to open your Bible and you need to look at these verses. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27. Therefore, says Paul, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That is another way of saying some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. And probably the question that you have is, what in the world is Paul talking about here? What's all this about people getting sick? And some even dying. Well, we need to understand the background to Paul's words, which was the, the, pr- the practice of the early church, in addition at the tail end of, of there being a, an observance of the Lord's Supper, was a churchwide meal. You say, well, we have that, don't we? Kind of like our munch and mingle. Similar, right? See, it's biblical. It's biblical to get together for food. We call it munch and mingle. They called it something different. Some love feasts. So there was a full meal, and the purpose of this feast was for people to be together, the body to be together, for fellowship, to share all good things with one another, obviously food together. And then it would conclude with the observance of the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. But listen, what was supposed to have been a sweet time of fellowship and relationship and communion at the church of Corinth in light of their identity and their union with Christ had instead become a time of division and contention of dissension amongst the people. Paul talks about this. Look at verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions, that is schisms, exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about this. They're locking arms with one uh, leader over another. There's division in the church at Corinth. And Paul calls them out. But then look at verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. You know what they were coming in and doing? Instead of, of coming in with an with a attitude of service and letting others go first and all of that, they were coming in and they were being gluttonous. And they were coming in hungry and, and getting in front of other people and being selfish and self-centered. In and verse 33, notice this. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul is alluding to this gluttony, self centered gluttony that these Corinthians were guilty of. And then look at verse 21. And you're eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So now they were getting intoxicated. And so what is the point in all of this in the historical context of, of Paul's words? They, the Corinthian church, had turned an opportunity for sweet fellowship and sharing and partaking of God's grace through that whole um, meal together and eventually the Lord's Supper. They had turned that, something of blessing and togetherness, into something of division and full of blatant sinfulness. They were not walking holy before God and with one another. I remember this. I remember once as a teen witnessing this type of hypocrisy. Being a part of a membership meeting where people be, get, got up and began to yell at each other and say all kinds of mean things at each other. And even the pastor's wife got up and started yelling at other members and saying how her husband wasn't appreciated in the church. And then other people started yelling at her. And then an hour later, guess what we were doing? We were enjoying a wonderful munch and mingle together. And then the pastor had the bright idea at the time to have the Lord's Supper at the tail end of that. But during the meal, people were mad dogging each other. People were angry at each other. There hadn't been reconciliation. People were not treating each other with love, and yet were enjoying supposedly this hypocritical meal and eventually the Lord's Supper. You think that God was honored by that kind of activity? It's hypocrisy. That's not genuine. That was not an expression of love for the Lord or love for one another. And so this, that's, that's what was happening even in the church at Corinth. And, and Paul has strong warnings for them. Notice in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You know what you guys' problem is? You are treating with indifference and contempt the body and the blood of Christ by virtue of your known unrepentant division and sin against one another. What words of caution. Don't treat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, judge yourself, examine yourself rightly, or you are subject to the judgment of God in the form of his fatherly discipline upon you. He's writing to believers, right? They're going to be disciplined by God. Things have gotten so bad that God had disciplined many And even look at verse 30. Some of them had died. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Oh, it was a terrible situation happening in Corinth. And Paul has these strong cautionary words against the Corinthians. So Paul says in verse 28, what are we to do with this? A man must examine himself. And in so doing, he says, he has to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here is the therefore, in other words. Or here is the so what. If this is the situation at Corinth, folks, you need to examine yourselves. That word there, examine, in verse 28, is the word dokimazo. It means to to test oneself for the sake of approval. The idea is is to search your heart. To take an honest look within. That area of your heart that no one can see but you and God. Take an honest look at yourself, he says to the Corinthians. Examine yourself. Documazo. The same principle applies to us today, right? Listen to me. If you are the cause of active division in the church or in conscious, known conflict with another Christian, you need to repent of that sin. You need to repent of it. You need to confess it to the Lord seek His forgiveness, and you need to go reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ. Our Heavenly Father doesn't look past our sins, sweep our sins under the rug, does He? Yes, Jesus has paid for those sins. We are secure in His love, but He wants us to be holy, Christ-like in the way that we deal with one another. Deal with that sin. If you are living... On the other hand, a known, unrepentant sin, even sin that people don't know about, secret sin above all. Listen to me. You need to repent, to turn from that sin and confess it to the Lord and get accountability from others. Confess your sin, James 5, to one another. Seek help. But above all, seek forgiveness from God. Listen, the Lord's Supper, beloved, is cautionary, cautionary. This is why, as your shepherds, we often say, when we're framing the time during the Lord's Supper, if this is you, division, or any uh, known unrepentant sin that you know you're compromising in your life, consciously, let the cup pass. Let the elements pass. Why? Because you don't want to treat with indifference and contempt the Lord's Supper. The very sin that Jesus came to die for, you are coddling in your life. You are petting in secret privacy before God. You don't think that God sees that? There is no such thing as secret sin. You understand? Everything is done in the sight of God, even though you may hide it from other people. So can I plead with you this morning? As one of your elders, listen to me. We love you and we care for you and we don't want to see God's judgment upon you in the form of his fatherly discipline that he gives you a spiritual spanking for that sin confess it confess it to him you say no we've heard it in the past whenever we share encouragements like this well well nobody's perfect nobody's perfect we know that i'm not perfect you're not perfect i think more often than not when we say that we're trying to excuse our sin But it's true at face value. None of us are perfect. Only Christ is perfect. That is why only Jesus, the perfect God-man, blameless, spotless, Lamb of God, could go to the cross and sufficiently pay for sins, right? Because only He is perfect. But we're talking about here about living in known, unrepentant, conscious sin where you are hurting yourself, and even though you don't think it this way, you're hurting the body of Christ in some way, shape, or form because you're living in compromise and not confessing that sin to the Lord. You can also be guilty and subject of God's judgment if you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you make it a habit as a non-believer, as a non-Christian of partaking of the elements, listen to me, you are not following faithfully God's instructions here. You, first of all, must be reconciled to God. Don't playfully and haphazardly take the Lord's Supper as if it has no significance. Listen to me, you're bringing judgment upon yourself if you're a non-believer and you're partaking of the elements. First, you must repent and completely pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life so that you can celebrate the significance of your Lord's death for you, for your sins. Don't take the elements in a haphazard, playful way as a non-believer. Be saved. Confess your sin to the Lord. Follow Him as Lord and Savior. I would say for us as believers, in conclusion, listen to me. In a sense, the regular practice of the Lord's Supper is sort of a checkpoint or a safeguard for us, isn't it? I mean, we're called first John chapter 1 verse 9 to continually be confessing our sins to the Lord, to be keeping short accounts with God every single day. We ought to have times of confession, maybe at the beginning of the day, especially, right? Reflecting upon the fact that we're sinners and thanking the Lord for his sacrifice. Every day we ought to do that as a way of life. But when we come to the Lord's table, it becomes a checkpoint and, and, a, and a key safeguard for us so that we are walking faithfully before the Lord in light of his atoning death on our behalf. You know, there are two extremes that you and I can fall prey to in the Christian life. Okay? And all of us at some point or another are somewhere in between. The first extreme is living legalistically. Legalism can, we can fall prey to that in our life. The idea that I can do something or I need to, to stay in favor with God based upon my performance and the good things that I do As if at the moment of conversion, you brought something to the table, and even in your sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming like Christ, you are continually staying in favor with God by virtue of your good works. Listen, there is nothing that you have done or will do that will ever have any salvific significance. It's solely the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that saves, right? We must not be legalistic on the one hand. On the other hand, we can fall prey to libertarianism kind of mindset. Licentiousness. No law. The idea that, hey, I'm justified. Justification is definitive. One time declaration that I am righteous in Christ. Yes, amen. Preach it. But then Paul says in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The libertarian mindset says, I'm justified. So it's okay if I live in sin. After all, God will forgive me. He has already forgiven me. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. He will just continue to cover me as I continue to walk in unrepentant known sin. Listen, neither legalism nor libertarianism are Christ-centered sanctification. Neither one honors the Lord. Neither one. One of them, legalism, robs Christ of his sufficiency because we begin to think that somehow we bring something to the table, even in sanctification, we don't bring anything to the table. We practice obedience out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done and our desires to glorify God, but there's no salvific significance to that, is there? And on the other hand, the other, libertarianism, treats with indifference and contempt the sacrifice of Christ. We operate as those who believe in a cheap grace a cheap grace Titus 2:11 through 14 is the classic passage isn't it Titus 2:11 through 14 says this for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared the grace of God brings salvation and then it says instructing us this grace instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live soberly righteously and godly in this present world so the grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies us, that that it trains us to deny ungodliness and to be walking in righteousness. And that grace, he says, ultimately sustains us all the way unto the end. It's a saving grace, a sanctifying grace, and a sustaining grace all the way to the time when God takes you home or Jesus returns. Amen. We need to be living. Grace-filled lives, beloved. Grace-filled lives. So the Lord's. Supper is absolutely significant, especially for that last reason. It becomes a safeguard for us. It's cautionary. And I thought it fitting, as we close here, as my brothers come up to lead us in one last song, I thought it fitting that we take a few moments here of reflection and self-examination. Okay? With your Bibles open, and you can close your Bible at this point. And I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And have a a few minutes of reflection before the Lord. Listen, we're not partaking of the Lord's Supper, obviously, but confession is to be an ongoing practice of the believer. So is there known unrepentant sin that you're aware of in your life, that you're compromising and you know it, and the only one that knows is God? Maybe others don't see it. Are you in conflict or in dissension with another brother or sister in Christ here? Something that you're not willing to work through. Something that you're holding on to. Confess that to the Lord. Confess that to the Lord and make it your commitment today to pursue that. Okay? So take a few moments to reflect upon that. 1 John nine, says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the assurance that we have as believers. That, listen, though God rips our hearts open and exposes our sin, Jesus is the balm, isn't he? Christ is the balm. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the assurance, beloved, that you can have when you are honest before God about your sin. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright by the Lachman Foundation.